it's just talking to people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, it's conversations, you know, and I'm good at that. You know, I have a natural gift from God to be able to communicate with people and relate to people. Um, and I learned so much from talking to people. The best thing that I ever learned in life is if you listen more than you speak, you'll always be able to understand somebody. And one thing that I learned is that we are much more alike than we are different. We just make that more complicated. Today we have a very, very special guest. Um, before I introduce um, our special guest, again, allow me to, you know, um, just give a little bit of background history on why I started the podcast. Again, the name of the podcast is called the Live Your Purpose Podcast. And um, to me, living living my purpose and living living purpose is, number one, is doing things and stepping outside of yourself and doing things with intention, living your life with intention. Um, and I just feel like the stage and the development that I'm in in my life right now that I'm truly doing that. I'm doing things with a true purpose. Uh, and I try to step outside myself and do a lot of things that I may have not done in the past. And now I feel like I'm truly living my purpose. So throughout these interviews, I want to be able to interview different people whom I respect, who I love, who I trust, um, and people who I really admire their story um, and allow them to kind of tell what their definition of living their purpose is. So today's episode, we have an individual who is going to do exactly that. Um, as our first female, our first woman on the on the podcast today, she is a psychologist, an entrepreneur, a yoga instructor, a very, very well, actually my best friend, um, my wife, and the mother of my children one day, um, <laughs> Dr. Sierra Dennis Morgan. Let's give it up for her, y'all. Let's give it up. She already... Uh, She's already making some changes. We got the couch in the background now. She hooked she hooked me in the me and the team the up. Yeah, she hooked me in the team up with you know with some tea before you know what I'm saying when I when I was doing the podcast just by myself. I gave my dudes bread and water and some chips. And you know what I'm saying now we you got a different feel. Um, see, thank you so much for joining us today, baby. Of course, I appreciate you so much for doing this. You nervous? I mean, a little bit, but not really. Okay. All right. Cool. Well. Um, you know how it goes a little bit. Um, I want to start at the beginning. Um, we're going to take it slow. Um, and I'm going to allow these good people to get insight into your story, what I already have a lot of information on. Um, you already know how the process goes. I do a little bit of um, dirt digging. So I've spoken to some people close to you. I've heard <laughs> some things about you that I knew and some things I didn't know. Um, so we're going to allow you to share your own story from your perspective and highlight some of the things that I already know and already respect and love about you. Cool? Okay. All right, wonderful. All right, so, again, um, we kind of read through everything on your title. Um, let's start at the beginning. You were born and raised here in Akron. Um, from my understanding, you knew who you were at a very, very early age. Um, both of your pa parents were in ministry. Um, I know they're originally from Columbus and they relocated here, um, and then they moved here for ministry purposes. Um, I also heard that in your own way that you were very un uh, outspoken, which is very interesting to know. But when I thought of it, I'm like, yeah, that kind of that kind of makes a lot of sense. And they, I heard you were a a funny kid and, and a pest in your in your own way. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, uh, tell tell me tell me a little about a bit about that about your about your early years, what you can remember. What I can remember. Yes. I think my earliest memories are 1993. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I think those are my earliest memories. You was five? 
I was five. Okay. I remember going to kindergarten at Erie Island. Okay. Um, and what was my teacher's name? Miss Capper or Miss Casper, something like that. And I remember being student of the year. And there's certain things I remember in my kindergarten year, like okay. with certain people. And I remember my mom coming up to the school. I remember wanting to go home all the time. Um, so my earliest memories start there. And then I have other memories like young, first through third grade-ish. And then I have memories yeah. that keep going. So tell me specifically what you're asking me. So when I spoke to your mother, uh-huh. um, I asked her about you. And one of the first things she said, she was like, she was just such a, a happy, a loving, she was a night. She, and I said, she was a love child? She said, yeah, she was a love child. <laughs> and we both busted out laughing and, you know, as you and I know, you know, we both had conversations about what that means. Um, and I consider myself to be a love child also, you know, mm -hmm. of an offspring of two individuals who are very much in love. And even though my parents aren't together anymore, I can just feel it that when they're around each other or when they talk about me or, you know, when they just I can just feel different things mm -hmm. about when they talk about when I was born. I can just feel even when I look back at old pictures. I can just tell that they were really much in love with each other. Yeah. So that very much resonated with me, you know, when she said that. So when your mother said that, I'm like, okay, I got to ask her what, you know, what she considers herself, why she considers herself to be a love child. Because I know you say that to me before. So why do you consider yourself to be a love child? Yeah, I think that my thoughts are similar about that. I think that my parents, um, I think I've always known and considered my dad to like be in love with my mother, like, and always has like, pursued her or talked about how he's loved her forever um and I always no have known that my mom loved him back and so I think that I like grew up and was raised and always felt like a whole lot of love around me and I think I've always cared deeply for people but I think that that also has a lot to do with just what I witnessed as a child so mm -hmm. I think that that translated in that way um in my life because I just have always cared a whole lot so a lot of my memories too are like around either caring for people and like things related to that like good times are like being hurt because i was caring for people like mm -hmm. a whole lot so, yeah, yeah 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 and that's and that's some, some of the things that i want to be able to you know really kind of highlight is because i mean obviously you know that was one of the things that i really i noticed in you early you know was your your natural knack and appreciation for caring and serving for others mm -hmm. um and granted through time i learned to kind of understand you know where that came from so i'm interested to, to hear from you is did you did you always see your people kind of like serving people and what that meant for the other people that they were serving? You know, how did that kind of resonate to you to say, okay, um, I want to do that myself, you know, or was it just kind of a natural, like, okay, this is what I seen them do. Mm -hmm. Or did you kind of see the effects that how it had on other people? So you say, you know, I want to do that also. How, what was that for you? I think it's just what I thought that people did. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that I thought that all people did it, mm -hmm. but I knew that my people did it. Mm -hmm. And so, and I don't even remember it being a thing of like, that's what I want to do. Maybe until like, maybe when I got older and it's like, oh, these are things that maybe I admire about my parents or people in my community or something like that. But not when I was, not a whole lot. It mm -hmm. was just like, you do right by people. Um, and I thought that that's what they would do and show and try to be to people. Yeah. Um, so it was more so of like, this is just who we are. Yeah. And not that we were set apart or different, but this is just how you treat people. Right. So was it a was it a verbal message or was it just a because I know your mother is real mm -hmm. big on action or love is an action mm -hmm. word, you know, so it wasn't a verbal mm -hmm. thing like this is what we do. It was 
you see us do this and you know how to kind of conduct yourself based off of what you see us do. Yeah, for sure. I don't remember. I'm sure that there are like things that were said, but those things don't like stand out to me. I mean, there's some things that I remember my mom saying when I was like really young that like echoed that. Mm -hmm. And they were just like sayings. And it's funny that you said it because um, we do like in one of the groups that I'm in, we do like a check-in round or whatever. And so we were reflected on like statements that we remember in like childhood. And so one of mine was like, remember who you are and whose you are kind of thing. So I guess stuff like that does trigger that in your head to be like, who are you and who are you connected to? Mm -hmm. And like she would say stuff like, uh, pretty is what pretty does. And she never wanted me to like, she wanted me to recognize that like beauty is within like your actions and how you live, not necessarily like in external things or like features or things like that. Um, but I don't remember like a whole lot of like conversations or like verbal things around how you treat people. It was more so just demonstrated. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so you, yeah, that's cool. I mean, it's, it's always interesting to hear people's value system instilled in them, and that's kind of what you're explaining right now. Mm -hmm. um, and what you're really saying is that, you know, they didn't really so much verbalize tell you what your value system would be as more they showed. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, I can remember a lot of messages being kind of told to me, you know, to instill things, you know, instill certain values. Mm -hmm. Like I can remember my mother saying, you know, you treat people this way or, you know, you don't do this when people do things for you, say thank you. Mm -hmm. You know, very intentional about the message that she was telling yeah. me. And maybe that's just the difference in the individuals, you know, mm -hmm. how they want to conduct their messages. But it's very interesting to hear, you know, you say, this is what I remember how the values were kind of instilled. Um, I touched on it a little bit um, with your parents both being in ministry. Um, what I've come to learn about people in ministry is that they're really entrepreneurs. Um, mm -hmm. Did you know, like, talk to me about when you were in school, um, maybe area island in middle school, um, even a little bit in high school. But did you know that they were entrepreneurs? Did you know that they were different than the typical parents who went to work every day, so to speak? Do you remember, um, did you have any days where they said, okay, we're going to do the um, bring your parents to work, work day or whatever. And you talked about your parents serving in ministry or whatever. And it wasn't my parents work at Chrysler or my parents work at this place, such and such. Did you know that your parents are entrepreneurs? I don't know if I thought about it like that until I was older. Okay. What did you see? What What was your experience of seeing them in ministry as, as it related to just the work? Yeah. So... Okay, so my mother, when I was really young, she worked at Candy Cane. So mm -hmm. my mom, like, did go to work. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, and even when she... Like, oh, so she, she works. I didn't mean to cut you off, but she yeah. worked for Candy Cane yeah. prior to having yes. her own. Okay. Yeah, and so, and I remember this and how she just has such great respect for uh, Miss Gardner, um, who started Candy Cane, who's passed on. But she um, has such great respect for that woman as well as like the people that work there so she did go to work and I remember that and then when she started her own business I remember like witnessing some of the challenges that came with that and I knew that that was like different in some ways um and then my father just felt like I don't even know if I had words for the things that he would do because he just was involved in like all of this stuff like and it just felt like yeah he's a pastor but it was all of this community stuff mm -hmm. that he would do um and I remember, like, on uh, take your, like, kid to work day and stuff like that. Like, I remember going with, like, other people to work, like, in my really? community. Yeah, I don't even remember, like, going with my parents okay. to work, which is funny. So, you went with other people uh -huh. to their work. Where did you go? Did I went remember? to Goodyear one year. Okay. Um, so, you got to see the, the nine to five thing differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, in different sense. But since you said that, it just made me think of that. But, yeah, I don't know if I... 
view them as so different. I knew that they were different because my dad was a pastor and my mom was a pastor's wife or first lady or whatever. So, like, that was different. Mm -hmm. But as far as, like, work and nine to five, like, they worked a lot. And I think that what I've come to recognize more recently, um, especially, like, in my relationship with you, is, like, their work never stopped. Mm -hmm. So, like, and now I see how that plays out and how I move throughout how I work Mm -hmm. and how I see work and et cetera. Um, So that's different Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Like I see it now. It wasn't until later in my twenties where I was like, Oh, people don't go nonstop. Like that's not even like good for you for real. Right. right. So, but yeah. And being a successful entrepreneur, some of the ones who are very successful tell you they work nonstop Nonstop. or work around the clock. All the time. All the time. There there are no days off. Mm -mm. If you take days off, your business suffers or, you know, there's, it's feast or famine. And with my father, when people die, because he would do like funerals and like, and weddings and people would get sick and people would like need different things and he would be there. Mm -hmm. So like he, was not away like it was never he was never off like mm-hmm. ever um so that's also a different thing is like they're like constantly like on call and even if they f- if it felt like they weren't doing something they were doing something mm-hmm. like talking about something thinking about something and i do remember conversations around like ministry and stuff like that not necessarily around people's like business but around like what we should do and how we should move and what the needs are and how to meet the needs mm-hmm. so even even that message was conveyed to you through action and not necessarily verbally as far mm-hmm. as what work looked like and what how people went about work mm-hmm. the message that they sent you as far as that went it was you've seen them you've seen your father do a lot of different projects you've seen your mother go to candy cane help somebody else you've seen her start her mm-hmm. own so those messages were always you just seen it and that's how it kind of you know made sense for you i would say so now yeah. something different could have been going on but this yeah. was my experience of yeah. them yeah. um thus far and how i remember do you it. know do you know what your parents this is random but do you know what your parents love language is um, is it what what is it yeah so my mother's is acts of service okay makes sense uh-huh and my father's is quality time okay which is interesting <laughs> okay all right but i would say so i wonder if he would argue that now but we've talked about this before but yeah but what I'm hearing you say, it sounds like they both would resonate with acts of service. And I yeah, never yeah. even thought about that until just hearing you kind of talk about talk about that now. Um, but love language is how you receive love and how you want to receive love. Isn't it both, though? Isn't it how you receive, but also how you give love also? Yeah, but it's really about it's how, more how you, you receive how, how you pref- what you need to feel love, okay. too. Like, that's okay. a big part of it. Yeah. So, like, yeah, they would give and et cetera, but, like... My mom would feel loved if, like, she could see the vacuum lines in the speaker. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, that she felt love from yeah. that. Yeah. And, and and the next thing I want to kind of talk to you about is, like, the reverence that you really have for your parents. And you still do to this day, mm-hmm. you know, because I, obviously I know you and I have relationships with them. And I see the appreciation and the reverence that you have for your mm-hmm. mother and father. And I always, I tease you because, um, for me, that's that was a different experience for me, you know, to see... Um, an adult you really have so much of an appreciation for um her family and parents um that related you know so much back to your childhood as well um can you talk to me a little bit about why you think you have so much reverence for your parents and you know what is it about your parents that made you really appreciate them because i know one thing you've always said to me is as you were coming up one thing that always meant something to you was making your parents proud Mm -hmm. so can you talk to me a little bit about why that was so important to you and why it still is so important to you today? 
They make that so easy, though. So I don't even know if that's <laughs> a thing for me. They make it so easy. But the reverence that I have for them mm-hmm. um, and my siblings. Yes. Um, why? Well, I just think they're special. Like, I think that they're, like, really special people. Mm-hmm. Like, really, really good and special people. And not only have I watched them be so good to me and good to people that are, like, extended, they've been good to, like, people that are in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I have very close friends that refer to them as, like, mom and dad who've, like, lived with us. Like, even when we were adults, like, I stayed with my parents for a very long time. And some of my friends did, too. And just they nurtured people in, um, in just real ways. Like, mm-hmm. they just were real honest people. And I think a lot of times people in um, in the church get stereotyped as being, like, holier than thou or... Um, the church church is thought of in a certain way and that never was like reflected in what I saw in my parents like mm-hmm. not judgmental mm-hmm. um, just real like down to earth real loving caring people and I guess I just was so close to how they would care for people that like I just developed such respect for that and for who they are um, so I think that that's really what it is it's like the closeness of like witnessing their lives like mm-hmm. in how they live yeah and their love for each other mm-hmm. and as an adult i think how i what i respect about them is like how they are still like evolving um and so like learning and understanding like they're hurt more as an adult and how they try to maneuver through that and how they're honest about their pain because i don't think that they have like the opportunity to do that with everybody but me being close to that, I respect how they move through it in their humanness um, and like maneuvering their pain and their evolution and their openness to something different than how things were in the past. Yeah. They're not stuck for the most part. I think in some ways we're all stuck or rigid, but I think that they try yeah. a lot. Yeah. And that's, and that's so interesting because, again, I know a lot of people, even myself to an extent, you know, when you and I have first kind of got together coming into it you know like a lot of like a lot of us i had my own preconceived notions of what people in ministry or what pastors definitely what the children of people in ministry mm-hmm. may may tend to be or whatever you know i have my own assumptions and things like that um and it sounds like you know just from hearing you speak and obviously because i know you um i've said that like three four times but yeah i know you pretty well i think everybody is right everybody know i know you know right <laughs> but um but but no, it it what it what it sounds like you're saying is that they were intentional about doing the work and serving people. But as far as the 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 labels and the the extra pressure that was going to come with being in ministry and being mm-hmm. a pastor, having children who were in ministry and the children of pastors, they was like, "Fuck that!" You know, mm-hmm. we're gonna make sure that we are not going to succumb to everything that comes with that. Mm-hmm. We're gonna do things differently you know even as you stated you know is continue to grow and you know committing to evolution you know a lot of times the rigidity is an easy thing to do um so to hear them and people under the cloth so to speak to kind of embrace that is refreshing and i think that's what i know for a fact that's one thing that i definitely you know took to as i got to know you Mm -hmm. and definitely as i got to know your mother and father was like okay you know they're different you know they didn't push anything on me and, it, and i can see mm-hmm. you know what you kind of referring to uh right now um so that's so that's cool can you do you remember feeling any like extra external pressure from being you know uh, a pastor's child like do you can you speak on any times where 
it was like, okay, this is different because of who my father is or who my mother is. Do you remember any times like that? From them? Um, or from other people? From other people. Well, yeah. Actually, from both. From both. Yeah. I remember, um, well, I remember times from other people. Like, people say, like, small little, like, slick things. Yeah, little jabs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that happens, like, often. I think it still happens even as an adult. Mm-hmm. Because, like you said, it's just people have this, like idea of what they think is or who they think that you are mm-hmm. and so i don't know they just get i don't know fly and just be saying whatever sometimes yeah. and sometimes i don't even think people mean any harm but yes but yeah i don't know if i want to speak to any examples and sometimes sometimes you have to get rid of that stuff like mm-hmm. some of it i keep for a little bit and if i dug i could probably think of some things that were said but um i have to kind of like process it with like my mom or say what was said and then keep it moving um times with my parents where i felt like any pressure that's the question yeah like specifically as it related to being the the child of a pastor and a first lady not really i think that this is both and though so i think that i do remember when i was in high school and my mom wanted to talk to me about sex and she told me like don't get pregnant (laughs) and she and i remember her saying this um she told me like don't and it was I don't remember the words, but it was something like she didn't want to go through what she went through with my sister again. Mm-hmm. And um, and I heard it loud and clear. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember exactly what she said, but I remember we were driving. I remember we were close to the church. Um, whatever that is, like what is, so if we're off of bail and that's exchange, whatever the one on the other side is. Like I remember Cedar. Maple. No, Maple. Ma- I, Maple. Yeah. yeah. So I remember being like right there when she was having this conversation. And she probably looked at Planned Parenthood or something oh, and right. was like, let me tell her right now that you can go right there. <laughs> So I do remember that, but I think that that's like, like a mom thing too. So mm-hmm. I don't know if it was just exclusive to like who you were, yeah, or who they were, yeah. But there was something else connected to it, like that. That yeah, she didn't have to just experience that as a mother. She had to take that and experience that from the community too, in some ways, mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. how people view that and not understand what's what. So I do remember that, mm-hmm. um, but not really. Yeah. You mentioned it a little bit ago, um, Copley High School. It's, it's interesting because the last guest we just interviewed, Swoop, he mm-hmm. went to school with us. Well, I think Swoop graduated a couple years before me. I think he went to school with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Copley. You went to Copley. Mm-hmm. And we all have different experiences. Um, for the most part. Of Copley? Yes. I think we got a similar one. You think we got different ones? I think we definitely got different okay. experiences. That I mean, it's some. there's definitely some similarities in there. For sure. You're yeah, right. For sure. But... but we definitely had different experiences. Like, for the most part, I think I had a decent, a pretty good high school experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, just being an athlete, just being not corny, you know, be one of some of the only, <laughs> I had to throw that in there, facts. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't that many niggas that we went to school with. So, no. we automatically stood out, you know what I'm saying? And coming from having places like, coming from people with actually real backgrounds and things like that, it was just different, you know what I'm saying? And, so my experience was okay for the most part, but I also knew that the suburbs is one place, but there was also you know another place that was very much still home for me and still very much authentic to me that a lot of people out there didn't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know for you, your experience was was different from the standpoint that I know you graduated early, but you hated it. You hated the school. You said it was super racist. 
Um, so I want Are you to, these my words? That's why I'm about to give you the chance to okay, kind of speak on ahead. your own experience. Um, tell <laughs> no, me, tell, I'm just I was about to say, yeah, keep it real. Don't don't get on. Don't most get, things are don't super get on racist. camera and start fronting now. <laughs> no, most things are super racist. Okay, that's a ahead. fact. That's a fact. So speak on your experience specifically as it relates to being in Copley as a teenager and everything. How how that whole situation played out. Why you <laughs> just laughing? in general? No, because I'm a very like I'm working on this, so and you know this flexible language. I use flexible language, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. And I can be very vague, uh-huh. and so I like to know what the question is, so I can answer specifically because right, I don't know. say much more than what the answer is. Okay. So this is different. So I, just pre- be like, I, pre- I appreciate. Think about this time frame of four, four years in your life, I or three years, the, whatever. The vulnerability. It was. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So just ask me something specific if I if you want. So, but in general, Copley. So we moved out there the end of my eighth grade year mm-hmm. um so even that was different um like moving out there and it was just my parents and i because before my sister before she was married my sister and my nephew we all lived uh in west akron so that was even different like even before i entered the high school just the change of like living in the suburbs mm-hmm. um and then i went there in my ninth grade year you went from Hawkins to Wedgwood. That's funny. I went from Hawkins. And it's not Wedgwood. <laughs> what is it? We live on... Um, Ridgecrest? It's, well, I guess you could call it either one. But we, are not, not we don't get the benefits of living in Wedgwood. But that's a whole other thing. Okay. We don't get like a clubhouse and stuff like okay, that. Okay, that's true. That's facts. So, that's true. That's very true. But I did. I went from Hawkins to Misty Lane. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's see. Ninth grade, I... There were not a lot of black people. Mm-hmm. There weren't a lot of like ethnic minorities at all. But I felt like I knew those who were in some kind of way. I became friends with like people from different ethnic backgrounds, which I thought was really cool. And that was different for me in high school. And I still have connections with those people um, now. So I do appreciate Copley for that. Mm-hmm. Um, like Lorena and Batul and all of those people. Mm-hmm. And um, which were like great. So that was different for me because growing up, I had been around all black people. Um, primarily and mm-hmm. then to go from that to like some diversity very few black people and then a whole lot of white people was just really different um and I don't know if it was just these like blatant like uh racist experiences that I had but I knew what was there and I knew what was going on um one that I considered to be that was I remember having a friend um who said she wanted she hated Copley she was white she hated Copley and she told me, like, probably, like, in the middle of her ninth grade year, uh, she was really struggling with some stuff. And she said she went to her guidance counselor, and she told him that she wanted to leave. And so they helped her create this whole plan for her to graduate early and mm. all of this stuff. So I was like, oh, I want to do that, too, because I don't like being here either. And so I went, and I talked to my counselor, and they were like, no, you can't do that. Mm. And they told you no. After they told the white girl, yes. Yeah, they told me, like, for sure I couldn't do it. They were like, you can't do that. Mm. And um, <laughs> I was like okay Mm -hmm. and I remember making it happen and then I like doubled up on my classes and stuff so I remember stuff like that of like once I was told like no like really being like all right I'm getting out of here plus it was just different and the things and the culture of what was going on there was just different to me um but yeah I mean I feel like as black people in Copley we knew about each other and knew each other existed and there was some like common respect Mm -hmm. within that but um, I didn't have a lot of closeness because there were very few black girls that went to Copley um, until like my senior year when I met like Jazzy, who I'm friends with to this day. 
Um, but I, there wasn't a lot of, and there was one other black girl that I was close with. So then even that was interesting too. It's like, there's so few of us, but like um, how to maneuver through all of that. Yeah. It's almost like, <laughs> it's three black girls, so how you be friends, you gotta be friends with right. the three black right. girls. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Um, but yeah, so it was it was interesting and it was different. But it was only three years. Yeah. And there's certain things like I could like speak to that I like recall, but nothing that's like worth really talking about yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, too crazy. Yeah, that's again that's a different experience. I, and what's funny is we knew each other in high school, but she was older than me, y'all. So she ain't really paid me no attention like that. You know, I I remember I remember you wearing this pink sweater with these light jeans mm-hmm. and these pink heels, and you used to walk in the hallway. With your books real tight, and you used to walk real fast. But you I were did. All, you were always speak, you would always say hello. But you used to be moving. I'm like that girl is fine. She don't know me. She says hello, but you will always be walking so damn fast. I'm like, where's she going? Always. I hated the veils. I hated the in between time. I think that I just had some anxiety about like all okay. of that. And it was like I went to a small. I went to Arlington. It's so small and so little. It called me huge. Yeah, and then the only person I knew when I went was Alan. Um, and like Alan let me use his locker, mm-hmm. so that was like super helpful because you know like the freshman lockers was all the way like far away, mm-hmm. and so I was like, "Was y'all freshman about- lockers upstairs?" Yeah, they was super far, but I never, yeah, I never even here. knew my code or anything because yeah. I used Alan's the whole year because we rode the same bus and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did. I hated walking through the halls, and I used to wear the same kind of shoes, the same heels, mm-hmm. and the same kind of sneakers mm-hmm. all the time. I would just buy the same ones over and over. <laughs> Over and over and over. So yes, I know exactly. I remember that baby fat outfit too. I, seen I had all the velour outfits. <laughs> I seen <laughs> all of them. Seen and the, all the, the urban facts. wear, like every the single rocker wear, all the of baby it. fat. All what of else it. was out? Apple bottom. You was rocking apple bottom too. Echo. <laughs> all of it. Hey, I never wore Echo. Ever. I don't care, but I think that was a boy versus girl thing. I had some Echo okay. like sweatsuits. I was big on the Nietzsche though. I can't sit up here and cap. I was I was big on the Nietzsche. I had a Kooji outfit that I thought I was Kooji so too. so nice. I had Kooji too. Dang, Urban Wear need to come back. Urban Wear was the shit. I think Baby Fat is trying to come back. I saw Kamora's daughters, but men ain't wearing Baby Fat. I'm talking about something that men can wear too. What Sean John? You want to wear? I'm Sean? not wearing Sean John no more. <laughs> Even though the Sean John velour outfits was raw. Yeah, I, I didn't have one. I remember my, I asked my mom for a Sean John Valor outfit. She came back and got me a um a South Pole. No, I see, to, I didn't like I'm South like, Pole. No, South Pole had the characters and stuff. I'm like, get this out of here. No. <laughs> yeah, she gave me the South Pole. I'm like, no, this is what Eminem be wearing. My camera. <laughs> so it got an S on it, like Sean John. I'm like, no, no, I'm cool on that. That's that that Gabriel brother, TJ Maxx. She was on. Um, but but. So you graduated in three in three years. I mean, but you and you skipped over it a little bit. But they told you that you couldn't do it, and mm-hmm. you was like, "Nah, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna do it anyway." And mm-hmm. I know that's something that you also that also also resonates with you is that you know when people tell you that you can't do something, you are gonna make it happen. You know, so it was. I'm sure you know it was a lot of you know the culture shock, the you know the racism, but it was also a part of it. it was like they said you couldn't do it after they had just told the little white girl that she could do it. You like, no, I'ma do it. I'ma show y'all and, you know, keep it moving. Yeah. Um so that's one thing that I've always, you know, um, respected about you is that you find yourself in self determined situations that you, you know, you push through. Um after high school you went to Kent State, correct? Yeah. What you study when you first went, do you remember? What'd you take up when you initially went? I didn't take up psychology? I don't know. Oh, I thought you did some research or no, something no, no. on me. No, I really want to know. It was psychology from the gate? 
Yeah, I think so. Because when I, I don't know what it was called at Kent, but when I transferred to Akron, it was child and family development and psychology. Like I was, because one was in like health and human services or something like mm-hmm. that. And then, um, but I think it was those same things at Kent. Mm-hmm. I just, was, but you know, when you're freshman year, you take a bunch of like intro classes. So that's why I was asking because yeah. a lot of times the freshmen don't even declare a major like that. Yeah, or it was people. a lot of intro classes. Yeah. I just remember I went in, Jazzy and I, and um, of course other people, but that's who I knew. We went in under um, what was it called? I want to, is it Capita? Am I making that up? But it's like I've never the, heard of that. It's through Oscar Ritchie, which is the Black Hall. Okay. And they have students that you get to move in a week or two early, mm-hmm. or than all of the other freshmen. And the whole idea is that they would tell you the statistics about how many black kids or students would not make it to graduation. And so they would, you would look around and say, like, basically almost all of us wouldn't even be it. here yeah. at the end. Mm-hmm. So it lets you come early to kind of create this like family or whatever and like to take care of each other and you could take like your english classes in oscar ritchie and stuff like that so i did all of that and um so oscar ritchie was a building yeah it was a building okay. and you it could, wasn't like a scholarship program though no but okay. that there was a pro the program was capita that you went like a couple weeks okay. early okay yeah. okay but the building was oscar ritchie where everybody yeah. was in okay. yeah uh-huh. so yeah i remember that but I remember taking classes like and those were the classes that stood out for me because that's also like when my faith got questioned and stuff like that. And they were telling me about like all of this African centered stuff. Mm-hmm, and I went home mm-hmm. to my dad like, well, the Bible say all of this, but it's not these books. It's not it's these books. It's not included in the Bible and this and all that stuff. So like that's when all of that started. Like that's the stuff that stands out mm-hmm. in my freshman year because mm-hmm. that's the only year I was there before I went to. Well, in real life, before I went to Akron. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How many of those black kids actually made it through? Do you remember? So what's funny is the ones that I was pretty close with or like that we that I knew close enough, like that we would sit by each other, or like we lived in the same hall or like we would go into each other's dorm. Mm-hmm. I think almost all of us made it through. Mm-hmm. And um, this was like 12, 15 of y'all? Less than that. Okay. Like eight to I, I wasn't close with that many people. I was like, I don't know, your clique might have been. No, busy. it was less than that. But then, like, also they would have like upperclassmen come too. So, like, mm-hmm. I remember some of them and that finished too. Mm-hmm. They were like a part of like fraternities and sororities and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, it was a small group of people that I can like name yeah. and know. Yeah. Um, that graduated. Yeah. Okay. Now, at one point, you started teaching Bible study classes at Kent. Yeah. How did that come about, and where did that start, and what did those actually look like? Did y'all kind of just like? put together those eight to ten people you just talked about and you're like oh no. we're gonna sit around they didn't even scripture. come what you mean those people didn't even come to bible study but go ahead oh dang that's dirty no, so y'all wasn't dirty. clicked up like y'all thought y'all was we i never I thought said y'all was, was a family it was about oscar ritchie no it was about recognizing <laughs> and looking out for people and like see speaking to people when you see them and encouraging people okay, and like okay. seeing a face like because okay. you can feel real isolated mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so it was about creating a community okay but yes, I did create and have and cultivate like a Bible study family in college. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't going to Kent uh, when that happened for the majority of it. Oh, that's when. So you had went to Akron, and that's when you. Well, were Well, it started that. then, but then I went to Akron. You started the Bible study classes. Kind of. So I didn't start it. This is how it happened. So my he wasn't my boyfriend at the time, but this guy who played football, who mm-hmm. later became my boyfriend for years. He, um, this is when Facebook, like, when did Facebook start? This was when Facebook first started. So I was a freshman in college when I remember. Yeah, so it was like 2000. So I was like 2008, 2009? It was, oh, wait. It was before then. 
It was before then. It so had it to be like 07. six or seven. It had to be. But anyway, because it was still, we still had MySpace. I remember mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had sent me this message on Facebook and he was like, he had used to do these Bible studies or something. And his girlfriend at the time went to a school in another state and they were trying to do like these ministries on their campus or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he sent me this message about like coming and being a part of it or helping out with it or something like that. And so I used to just start going and I kind of just helped like, I don't remember initially starting out like teaching. I, I didn't do a whole lot of teaching of Bible study anyway. I just was kind of like admin-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it started like that. And we used to have these Bible studies in the dorm where like all the football players lived. And it really was about, and he had connected with the Fellowship for uh, Christian Athletes or whatever it was called, FCA. Mm-hmm. And so like all of these athletes, but really it was just football players and some very few at times it was like basketball players mm-hmm. and then sometimes we would get players from other sports mm-hmm. uh, especially as we joined with fca which was pre- predominantly white so then it like diversified just a tiny 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 mm-hmm. bit but anyway so that's how it started in the dorm and then we outgrew the dorm over years and then um i met my friend who's still my friend that's when i met toya mm-hmm. and she was doing ministry with this other group and some kind of way, I don't know, he must have asked her, we must have asked her, whatever. And so it became the three of us. And we would meet every week, plan these Bible studies, um, talk all the time, go to church together. And it just grew and grew and grew where it was like this like huge thing where we were like in the student union having these Bible studies in one of the like... Oh, y'all grew about that big. Oh, it was like big. Really? Like huge. At the capacity, or like at the max, at the height, how many people you... Th- think it was so there were times where it was like 70 something really people. yeah and they would be every monday at like 7 or seven thirty or something like that mm-hmm. and um and what would they look like what was it like a interactive type of thing what, yeah what, was, what does it look like so break that down <laughs> i have to talk to toya about this again she just texted me on sunday and was like saying something about bible study but whatever mm-hmm. we would sit in this circle mm-hmm. and we would like check in and do announcements and all that kind of stuff and then there was like a lesson like we would teach on some lesson Mm -hmm. that we had created throughout the week and talk about it Mm -hmm. and it would be interactive and what we thought was like really creative um and so toya is like super creative and she would come up with all of these different analogies really is what it was to compare like these things in the bible like scriptures and stories and she would relate it to things like that were like tangible and practical that people could understand and people loved it. I think for some people, it probably was like, that's where people were. And mm-hmm. it was like a social thing. And then for other people, I think um, it was very much like spiritual. But all of it is spiritual because we were in like relationship together. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we were going to church, like filling up the first couple of like rows of church. Yeah. And Toy and I would drive back and forth to Kent trying to get people to church. And then everybody would come over to my parents' house afterwards. And we would all have dinner together, drive back. And then it developed into like these other groups that we would have like issues of the heart and we would talk about like things that really people were struggling with um and we did this for years like until they were getting closer to graduation and then we had like had some younger like freshmen and i guess some of them were older than freshmen and they kind of like took it over Mm -hmm. and kept it going yeah that's cool that is mind-blowing to be doing that y'all was what 18 19 20 at Mm -hmm. the oldest yeah 20 21 and so it started off as being a small, intimate thing with just a few of y'all, and it grew to bigger and bigger classes. To mm-hmm. ultimately, to y'all was like basically renting out the student union to where it was sixty to seventy of y'all, mm-hmm. which then evolved into 
little pockets of y'all. A lot of y'all started coming to church. Like yeah, a lot of us. It would be it would be twenty something people. Sometimes thirty at my parents' house, and like we would have we would just hang out. Like we was in all parts of my parents' house and just hanging out. And did you know at this time that you were kind of like following in your parents' steps as like really providing real ministry? Did you look at it like that at the time? See, I don't, yeah, I knew it was ministry, but I just thought that it was so cool that people connected to each other and connected to that mm-hmm. because college is crazy. Yeah. And so even though like, cause it, in no way were we like holy either, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. cause I can name all of the places in the clubs and stuff Wherever we used to go to too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was where we could talk about just like real stuff. Mm hmm. And even stuff that we questioned or had a hard time with. So, yeah, I knew it was ministry, but I didn't say, like, oh, I'm following in my parents' footsteps. Yeah. And it still didn't feel like. It didn't feel like you were pastoring anybody. It just no. felt like you was just helping. and. Yeah, and I didn't normal. consider myself to be, like, one of the, like, they taught for the most part. Oh, like, oh, you never taught it at all. Not was, a whole lot. Even your, your role never evolved into doing any not kind a of whole teaching. Lot. It was always just admin and. And just bringing people along. Yeah, for the most part. people get there. Yeah, because we would meet. So I would, like, discuss ideas. I would type up with our agenda. Because everybody would get an agenda or, like, an outline with, like, the scriptures and the stuff for the week. So, like, I would type up all of that and try to make it pretty in different colors and, like, flyers. And, like, I would do that kind of stuff. And, like. A lot of some of the same stuff you do today. Yeah, and I was really, like, big on. And I think we all were. But it was so important to me because it reminded me of, like, when I was younger. I used to always think that, like, my mother, my father, and my sister, because this was before, like, my brother was around, mm-hmm. were really, really close. And then I always would think of, like, me, Stevan, and Toya and how close we were. It was, like, this, like, triangle. And so my thing was, it's, like, if that could be torn apart, we would lose all of it. Mm-hmm. And it did. We ended up having, like, conflict and things fell apart. Yeah. But, like, my big thing was, like, how do we keep our unit strong? Because if we can keep us strong, then, like nothing else would matter like everything would be all right so what does because hearing you say that today um and granted you know we've had um, intimate conversations about this kind of topic but it sounds like <laughs> there were some real spiritual forces that kind of like made sure that that thing didn't last you know so did you know at the time like okay spiritual warfare is real you know there's a there's an outside force that's saying that this can't go on because of this reason or did you kind of just look at it as all right the time is coming past or did you not look at it mm-hmm. either one of those at the times no i did i thought that um we were trying to be destroyed i yeah. did yeah that's crazy <laughs> i did you thought that at 20 uh however old i was yeah yeah i had to be yeah i had to be 20 yeah, yeah. And did you ever speak to them about that? About like... Yeah, we talked about it. Yeah. And I, obviously, y'all never seen eye to eye. Yeah, none of us are in a bad place now yeah. at all. Like, I have a relationship with both of them. I don't talk to Stefan as much anymore. Mm-hmm. But, like, I could. And no, no conflict. Um, and I don't even know if we fully processed how things fell apart. Mm-hmm. I don't think we ever did that. Mm-hmm. Toy and I had a more recent conversation, probably within the last year, about some of it mm-hmm. and what her experience of it was and what mine was um but yeah yeah that's i mean that's 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 interesting so how do you feel about today what is your thoughts on people coming together for like 
collective work and doing things that's like real purposeful and like being proactive to you know fight off the demonic forces that's coming to, to break <laughs> the shit up yeah. <laughs> what, what's what's your what's your thoughts or can you do you believe that people can be proactive in that yeah, I think you have to work real hard at that. The other thing that was interesting about where we were was the developmental phase in life. And, like, yeah. you're in college for a couple of years, yeah. and then you're supposed to graduate. You're supposed to move on. Mm-hmm. And just like where you are, being mm-hmm. 18, 19, 20-something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, even now, like, when you are in leadership or in any groups of, like, friends or, like, collectiveness, um, yeah, I think you have to be really – you have to work hard. And I don't mean that because I think sometimes that comes across as, like, doing so much but i i guess what i mean is like you have to be intentional about right. sustaining like what you have with right. people through actions through words yeah through, through learning people yeah. and growing with them i mean mm-hmm. some things are gonna like fade away and some things won't be forever mm-hmm. but like you have to nurture and nourish like your relationships and yeah. also like grow within yourself too because right. you outgrow people too or whatever right. but yeah i think that like that's a intentionality within that is real important so you said that you came into the door majoring in psychology. Do you remember where the seed was planted for you to be a psychologist? And like, because your story, again, going back to still similar to your high school experience, like you sped past like both your degrees. Like, so do you remember where the seed was planted? Said, okay, I want to be a clinical psychologist, and this is the type of work I want to do. Do you remember that type of thing? Like, was it anything? Did you always kind of have the dream of saying, like, well, I want to be a psychologist to help people. You know, I want to do this, this, and that. Where was that seed planted? Uh, yes and no. So some of it I remember and some of it I probably could do a better job at, like, um, talking to, like, probably my parents about it, too, to see what they remember about it, too. Um, but, excuse me, my mom had daycare. My dad had MBHG. Um, and so I just knew that degrees in those things made sense and that I would like figure it out so I don't know if I ever even when I was studying psychology like I knew that that was interesting to me but I didn't know that I was going to be a psychologist like mm-hmm. that wasn't my end goal or like game plan mm-hmm. um when I finished my I finished my degree in August 2009 I remember that and my sister was starting her master's program um for counseling and was like we should do it together, whatever, whatever. And so I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. And literally started in September. Like I started my master's program. So like I had just walked the stage, which I barely was like even going to walk the stage. And, and then what month was that when you walked the stage? In August. And I and started, started my master's master program, program in September. Less than a month later. Yeah. And so. And it took you how long to do your bachelor's? Four years? Yeah, it took four. Because wow. I graduated in 2005. So okay. yeah. And then it takes you two to do your master's. Mm-hmm. Um. So I know that my sister was like instrumental in that in some ways, which also includes like my father and my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, because like throughout that time too, I was doing like tutoring and stuff like that with our programs and stuff. Um, so my sister was like going for that. I was like, well, that makes sense because my dad did. I do remember this. My dad would and teach things like understanding like if you're going to have a degree in certain things, like how to best utilize them mm-hmm. and like how to get credentials mm-hmm. and like. I did know that and was mm-hmm. taught that. And, like, mm-hmm. if you're going to go how to get jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, I think that that's, like, super important and, like, helpful information. And mind you, people. your parents were still entrepreneurs and they still knew the yeah. importance of the game of education, the higher education. Yeah, a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But my and my dad was had a 
So, like, my dad doesn't have a degree in, like, mental health, but he had a mental health agency. And so he would know, like, you can get a license in counseling, you'll always have a job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. whether you work for us or or not or work with us or not. So, like, that kind of stuff, I think. But I, that was my master's. When I finished my master's, I was working as a clinician, and I didn't know if I was going to go back or not. And I do remember talking to Tania, um, and her being like, you got to keep going. And I, there were other mentors around me who were psychologists because at this point I was working at MBHG and MBHG pushes like education, education. like highly like believes in it and pushes it. And so they were like, you keep going. Mm-hmm. Like, and I was like, I do remember telling myself, like, I never wanted to be limited in anything. Like I always like I never wanted to get to anything and people be like, oh, that's something that you can't do. So I was like okay so then it does make sense to keep going and if I had a PhD in clinical psychology there's nothing further to do beyond that level of education really Mm -hmm. so um I just kept it moving because of like it just made sense and it's how I kind of like flowed into things and it's what my mentors around me were encouraging me to do so was it ever any moments where it was stressful going like did you ever hit a wall of stress from transitioning from those four years to those two years? Yeah, or was always. it just like, this is just time, I'm just moving through it? Yeah, I think it was always some stress attached to it. Like, I think, and when I've looked back on some of my, like, journals and things that I've, like, written, like, mm-hmm. I would be, like, you were stressed. stressed. Yeah. Um, but I didn't feel like I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing or, like, mm-hmm. on the right path, I mm-hmm. guess, for lack of a better term. So it felt it was diunital. I mean, it was both ends. It yeah. was the pros and cons of it. You were appreciate, appreciating the growth that was happening yeah, from yeah, yeah. getting your degree, but it was still... Yeah, I mean, and my master's, like, I was going to school with my sister. Right. So, like, we got really and y'all close. y'all was going to Ashland. Yeah, but our cohort was at Emerge, which is in Akron. Okay. And so, like, we would go to Ashland, and there were times we would drive there, and then we would have classes here and have classes at mm-hmm. a mall or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, at one point in time, and I don't know if you just kind of touched on it and skipped over it a little bit um, a little bit ago, but at one point in time, you were ultimately introduced to, like, black psychology and just different theories yeah. um, that you were kind of taught in school. Um, what Not was taught it? in school. Right. So mm-hmm. what what was it like when you first kind of, like, realize that okay there's other things outside of these traditional theories and the traditional theories that we learning this shit is very much rooted in oppression and racism yeah like do you remember knowing and feeling that yeah always like so you always knew it i always loved black people Mm -hmm. and even other ethnic minorities because like i told you like once i was in high school and i had friends that were of color um whatever term we want to use now or whatever mm. like i always the pocs <laughs> yeah or whatever but people hate that too so <laughs> right, whatever right, whatever right, term right, we want right, to right, use right. like i just i loved brown people mm-hmm. like all shades of brown i mm-hmm. always did mm-hmm. um and i always thought that people were mistreated and it wasn't right and that there were things that i was here to do for people like that like me mm-hmm. um so when i was young i remember that my dad used to bring people to the church um and by people, you mean like different speakers? Different yeah, yeah, yeah. People in the field, like people who were like big deals and stuff. Like he would bring in, in the field of psychology. Speak. Yeah, mm-hmm. and like in pastors and stuff like that. But like rooted in like African centeredness and stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. and so I don't even remember like what they said when I would hear them. But like I knew that that's what was going on. I remember going to like a rites of passage program at Rankin um, with my neighbors who lived across the street on Hawkins. So I remember, yeah. Oh, you drill. (laughs) But I remember, like, 
loving black people yeah, like yeah, yeah. forever mm-hmm. and so when I went to college like and I knew that like I wanted my classes in Oscar Richie I wanted to learn about black people I wanted if I'm gonna go to college and they're gonna teach me this stuff anyway I'm gonna learn it from all the black people that they got here mm-hmm. so like that was all there and I learned a lot of stuff there um about like oppression and stuff like that on a different level mm-hmm. my dad always had books because when he would bring these people in they were authors so they were always books laying around blacks in the bible and legacy and this and that and like all of that kind of stuff um and so when i got to mbhg i remember um when i got there is when tania had started i think around the same time and we used to have these therapist meetings that she had just started having because i don't think that they happened prior to her being there and we had to go around the circle. This is the first one I remember. I don't even know if this was the first one they had. And we had to go around the circle and say what theory we used and why or whatever. And I remember thinking, like, I don't know what I'm about to say because at this point I was still in my master's program. Like, I hadn't like I hadn't been really practicing it. I had just started. Um, and I don't even remember what I said. I think I said something that you're supposed to say because in school they tell you that you got to pick something and they tell you what you're supposed to say, basically. Um, and I remember Dr. John saying, like, optimal theory and belief systems analysis and Linda James Myers and blah 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 and he like stood by that and like I remember like Tania chuckling about like that's what he said he used and like but that's what we were using as an agency and so we kind of started doing more and more of that and grown within that and that's what we did as a group and so that's what I did like I believed in it it made sense to me it was true to what was true to me my whole life um, so I had always bought into black psychology. Mm-hmm. And so, but through being at MBHG and the mentors that I had, um, like it just developed more and more yeah. to where I started going to ABCI and it yeah, became a part walked. of my research and yeah. dissertation and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Speak, speaking of the, your research, can you talk to me about your dissertation, what it was about? Um, and you can, you don't have to go into too much detail if you don't want to, um, mm-hmm. but tell me. Tell us about your dissertation, what it was about, your experience in your PhD program. Um, because again, I remember, you know, what that time was like for you on the outside. And that shit was, was stressful. It was stressful to see you, you know, going through that, you know, every day. But can you talk about, again, what your dissertation is, what it's mm-hmm. about, um, what your research is about, and your experience as it relates to your your experience in oppression and the racism that you experienced in your dissertation. And the reason why I want you to touch on that is because I don't think a lot of people associate um, racism and oppression with higher academia as much as it is, especially as it relates in psychology. And you start talking about the way that people think and the way that people see things. And I remember you used to always say, these people are questioning the way that I think. And that will ultimately make you feel crazy as hell. You know what I'm saying? If somebody's telling you, that you're not a good thinker that's right. what they're telling you exactly you know so i think that those are the type of things that really need to be highlighted and people mm-hmm. kind of need to hear those things so can you kind of talk about that specifically a little bit a some lot of it. a lot of it well well it's two different <laughs> things that you're asking me to talk about because mm-hmm. one is my dissertation mm-hmm. and i guess my the process of me writing my dissertation oh i done hit my hit my car uh thing it's in your pocket yeah, it's in my pocket so my dissertation is about um, black clinicians experience with black clients and developing like cultural competency like to know how to work with black people because the thought wasn't what has happened in the research originally like you're taught white theories and therapeutic approaches in school and it's taught to be like universal that these are things that work for everybody 
but what the research says about black people and people from other backgrounds is that it doesn't work and there's a couple things that happen typically and what has happened over the years and the research has been consistent for a very long time is that black people are often over pathologized misdiagnosed they terminate treatment prematurely and so there's something then wrong with the treatment that they're getting um, and the people that they're seeing so over time like the field developed into like well then less like match black clinicians with black clients like maybe mm -hmm. if they see somebody that looks like them then maybe that'll be helpful and yeah that's a little bit helpful sometimes because there's some common context um, between people but if you're still using a white theory or a traditional theory that is not culturally specific then it's not going to be effective in working with black people um, so then that's why that then was faulty and is faulty and happens all the time, mm -hmm. all day, every day. Like mm -hmm. you hear people now, even with all of this focus on mental health now, you hear people all the time like, CBT is so good and I'm going to go see somebody and who do you see and I'm getting CBT or I'm talking to, and it, like it's like a thing mm -hmm. or whatever, mm -hmm. which is great that people are like getting care, but you're still using an approach that doesn't work for black people Correct. for the most part. Mm -hmm. I don't think mm -hmm. it's ideal at all. Mm -hmm. um, so then what happened is the field starts saying, okay, so then we can like adapt these theories and have like adaptations for like what you do with traditional models to help people. But nobody could really measure or understand what the adaptations were, when to use them, what they looked like, other than like language of like translation and stuff like that. So then the, it's like, well, what do you do with, with the adaptations if you don't even know what they are? So then that's not super good either. So then there's this thing called what we would call like alternative approaches. And so within alternative approaches is like African-centered approaches and black psychology. And that's where we find like optimal conceptual theory, which is what we use. And then the model is called belief systems analysis. But what I was doing was, and this is important like in research, is that I was building upon a study that was done before mine. So Tania had done a study on um, like black clinicians, like experience with learning about this model and using it and like mm -hmm. interviewing them as qualitative so she would interview them and what their experience was and then talk about cases that they used that theory within and etc and so then the next step from that was to build on that within how do you become competent and even like it's a part around it so like we wanted to do that study too and I wanted to do that work and then the study that would come after that, because originally what my dissertation was going to be about was because she had interviewed clinicians, I was going to interview clients and mm -hmm. see what their experience mm -hmm. was with receiving mm -hmm. this model that was different. Mm -hmm. Because then that can like speak to something that hasn't been spoken to in the research. But prior to us getting there, there's something to be said about like black clinicians development period. Um, so I interviewed clinicians about how they have found themselves to be and how they developed um, cultural competency and how they've learned to work with black people. And, and it's not just because they're black. So what that means and, and looks real like. real quick, you did that, you just um, kind of piggyback to continue to interview the clinicians because instead of the clients because the research was more important to do so? Like, what, what was that, a, was, was that a conscious decision? Yes, it is a conscious decision. So research has to like build too and it right. has to make sense right. so it was the best connector for the direction okay. that we're going okay. for the research yeah yeah, yeah for mm -hmm. sure mm -hmm. because it's it's scholarly literature i guess at some point because mm -hmm. then you publish it mm -hmm. and then that's how you contribute to the field or whatever mm -hmm. but we what becomes interesting about being in a phd program um is that you are being challenged all the time and as a psychologist you're a critical thinker like you're being taught to think critically about things 
And so what my experience was at several different points was um, that I was being critiqued for not being a critical thinker. And so I would have a hard time with internalizing that it was something wrong with how I was thinking about things. Mm -hmm. And that played out in a couple of different like scenarios throughout, you know, my education um, with my Ph.D. And um, even like being told that my study wasn't a study like that stuff. And I mean, there's a part of it like where a part of it you expect and they tell you is like just a part of it because people are developing you and they're trying like it's a challenging process anyway. But then there's something else that was within it that wasn't just challenging that just felt like a part of oppression mm-hmm. and some of the things that were said and like emails and conversation had conversations had and how things were taught that didn't feel like it was just for my development you have to be very careful with it because if you don't then you'll internalize it um to be something that's just pretty negative so it's it's just a it's a fine line to walk in a phd program my sister used to always say it's only like one of the hardest things that you could ever do mm-hmm. um because it literally challenges you on so many levels but like it's your mind right and like what we know about your mind is like connected to everything you right. challenge the way somebody thinks or change the way they think and control their mind and so you got to think um a lot within those programs and write and all of that stuff yeah so, so how much of, how much of that that was amazing by the way but how much of, <laughs> yeah it was how much of that is is connected to it being disruptive to the ultimate system and the infrastructure and it's connected to and how much of it is connected to just you as an individual you know and what i mean by that is obviously the oppression are very much co- correlated to if they're oppressing you you're being oppressed by the entire infrastructure mm-hmm. and the system but your research in general there was a reason it seems like there was a reason that they would give you pushback in the research that you're referring to because your research can be disruptive to the system um and i want to know from you do you think that they were that was a conversation on their part to say okay this right here we can't let this pass through you know because this a mess up a lot of stuff that we have you know going on or was it this black girl don't know what she talking about you know this is one-sided this is some silly stuff you know how much of it was those things um, that's an interesting question um, because I don't know if they thought about it as being that like powerful um, and I don't know if I thought about it or even sometimes think about it as being that powerful it I think sometimes like, but I, yeah I hear you because I do think that like on some level we always like sell ourselves short on mm-hmm. like the power that we have and mm-hmm. especially as black people like mm-hmm white systems do not want black people coming together and, and like shining all of their light and glory mm-hmm. all of our light and glory like mm-hmm. that is not what systems want to happen right um so like i know that and believe that but i don't know if i applied that i think that there were times i really was applying that when i was walking through that journey because i had to think about how it was bigger than me to get through it mm-hmm. like you always have to think of like that this is not just about myself mm-hmm. it has a bigger purpose or whatever but um, yeah, I think that they. I think that there's also just something to be said too about. I just don't know if they believed in it because that's a part of like racism in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Like just believed in me on right. even an individual level. Right, right. Like just 
poured into me, nurtured me, supported me in the same ways. And there were conversations that I had like on the phone um, with different psychologists and stuff within the program of like, like I was told like, this is bigger than you. Like right. I was told on a conversation like, and I remember where I was, I was in Columbus and something had to pass through at a certain date. And I was told by somebody like, this is beyond mm-hmm. you at this point mm-hmm. And it's not going to happen for you. Mm-hmm. So like, it does. It's not the end of like your career, of course. It's just not gonna happen within your time frame because this is bigger than you. Mm-hmm. So like, but sometimes I do lose sight of like those conversations, or even that there was rooms in which things were being said that I wasn't in, mm-hmm. um, and that like all of it, every little piece of it, every little piece of the truth is always gonna challenge Absolutely. the system and help disruptive. So right. like on some level, like. I have to think that because that's what I say that I think and believe. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if like I walk around like is that being my story every day, right? Um, so it's it's interesting. Yeah, because I mean, you even you even just kind of said it yourself. You know, when you challenge people, when you challenge people's thinking, and you can question people's thinking, and you can ultimately control somebody's thinking, then you can have real power and control over that individual. So your research and you know what you were actually talking what you were building on and talking about in your research can be extremely dangerous to uh, infrastructure (laughs) you know when they want people to to be sheep yeah challenges the status quo like all of it does now you know what i'm what i study what the people in the circles that i'm with or and people that i admire and mentors that i have like what all of us study and do like it all challenges it Mm -hmm. and disrupts it and that's Mm -hmm. what it's about Mm because like you have to get to the truth at some point, like, mm-hmm. and you have to, yeah, you have to like live in truth and yeah. and share the truth with people. Like, that's where real liberation is. Right, right. So, yeah. and that's what I really want. Like, of right. course, I want to disrupt the system, but I want to disrupt the system because I want real liberation to right. exist, right. and right. I want people to be healed, and right. I want people to know their worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and a part of it is just like I have to be able to push through because there's people behind me that have to push through and finish too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's good. That's very good. And um, what is optimal theory? And why is that so important? Uh, so Linda James Myers is a black psychologist. She's an elder within the Association of Black Psychologists um, who started publishing this literature on this thing called optimal conceptual theory. And some of her writings were like in 86, but really it's in 88 when her text came out. Um, and she's she teaches at Ohio State. Um, and so how I was introduced to her was through MBHG because her theory and therapy are what we use and teach and train um, on. And so optimal conceptual theory is a, um, it's a theory within psychology where the thought is that um, it's all about changing and shifting and understanding worldview. And so that's also something that is like newer within the field of psychology. It's not very like very super old-ish. It's like really looking at the importance of like worldview because worldview is like the lens in which we view the world, live through everything is how it influences our behavior, perceptions, um, everything, how we think, feel, like it's the lens. Mm-hmm. And so she really looks at, at that and measures that she has a measurement for it and talks about like the shifts within worldview and because the idea is to move to a more optimal worldview. And so she talks about and has this 
this chart that we use often that looks at and compares like an optimal worldview versus a suboptimal worldview. And so the thought is that psychological distress is the result of people experiencing oppression. And that includes like all of the different isms that people experience. And so she talks about it, especially like for people of color, um, people who are of African descent, but really any oppressed groups. And so it really can be and is like universal for all people. And so the idea is that you go from like a fragmented or lower point of consciousness to a higher point of consciousness through understanding using this theory and through like the treatment modality. And she would say that there's different ways that you can like increase your consciousness, but belief systems analysis is the psychotherapeutic approach that's mm -hmm. used to help do that. Mm -hmm. BSA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's the theory in a nutshell. It's like she's really talking about and explaining like oppression mm -hmm. um, and how that impacts people. Like it causes distress, depression, anxiety, like all of that kind of stuff mm -hmm. uh, within people. Yeah. Um. Talk to me about MBHG. What is it? When was it founded? Um, tell me about its value to you and to um, our community as a whole. You've touched on it a little bit, but I want people to really hear what it is. Um, MBHG is a mental health agency that started about 20 years ago. Um, really, the 20th anniversary was last year. And it was um, a vision of my father um and what what how he describes it is that back in the 90s um he and other pastors in the faith community like did this like needs assessments of like what the needs were in the black community in in our community or whatever and so they identify all of these different things like banking uh like food and et cetera. And then also like one of the big things and what you're asking me about is like, is mental health. So there was a lack of like understanding around mental health, there's stigma connected to it, and there were a lack of like black providers. And so um, back in the nineties, he and Dr. John connected. And then Dr. John knew, well, some kind of way, and I don't even want to mess up who knew who first, but um, they, became, they became a team of like five or six of them. And they started to see clients um, back in the day to provide care to black people um and that has transitioned over 20 years into us being uh state certified and nationally accredited for a long time we were the only black owned that held both of those things that probably has changed more recently um but we take really like great pride um and who we are and what we do and provide wraparound holistic services to people using this therapeutic approach that research already says works, but that we want to continue to show works with black people. Mm -hmm. um, that's created for us and by us. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, that's using OCT and BSA. Yeah. And you know, what my dad would say is like, it's grounded within Christianity um, as well. And to me, African centeredness and Christianity are like literally married yeah. in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, Can you talk talk about that a little bit? I just think that the value systems are the same. So like when we look at like in Galatians and it talks about like the fruits of the spirit and then we look at like the virtues of Maya or like the principles of the Deguza Saba, like those things are literally like the same thing. And when we look at like the idea of like consciousness and the idea of like just values and living in that way and self-knowledge and all of these different concepts, to me, they are um, these things in African psychology can be found in the scriptures when it's translated appropriately and read correctly and understood. I think that they 
literally just are married and they that they are that for me mm-hmm. um I don't know if that's everybody's experience but they are that for me and so what my father has done is like explain how the two connect for him but they also yeah. connect for me in a lot of ways that he's spoken to and he hasn't yet because I think he's still learning about the mental health aspect of it and mm-hmm. the psychology and the philosophy behind it um so but yeah so that's we provide counseling and case management services prevention services professional development training like literally I think that we do like everything Everything. um and I think that like we're really like best kept like secret is how Dr. John used to say I think that people are starting to know about us a little bit more and I think that um it's just amazing like who and what we represent who we are and what we want to continue to be um even when you look at how many black people are like employed Um, and just how we really are committed to people's like development. Mm-hmm. Like even people who didn't even know a whole lot about like mental health and are starting to work and grow and learn within mental health and the individual transformations that take place and how like professionals and providers can go and spread that with the community and bring this new awareness to mental health. Um, but then also like within their own lives, their their families, et cetera. I just think that it's like a really big deal. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, and I mean, I'm one of those people that resonate with that um specifically because I mean, you and I got reconnected through MBHG um, but I didn't really understand the components and what mental health really looked like, especially as it relates to Black people. I had I had no idea what mental health really really meant um, and so to be educated through mental health from a place like MBHG was you know it was refreshing and it was like life-changing really you know because it um it not only raised my consciousness but it um it was very much purposeful and just like it came at a point in time in my life where it was needed you Mm -hmm. know um and i think that a lot of people you know can resonate with that story so i'm very much a testament to on the um to the changes of NBAG. Now, granted, I have a, a biased yeah, <laughs> opinion. Too. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Um, but I, I'm I'm cool with that. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm mm-hmm. always one of those people that say that it's okay to to be biased as long as you speak on and you know you admit your biases. I think that's I think that's perfectly normal. But um, yeah, that's cool. You know, I. But it's it's bigger than just like mental health. It really is like very spiritual. Yes. Like very very spiritual. Yes. Um, and it's very much like a heart mind component, and that's what like. African philosophy really does too is looks at like the heart and the mind Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's just super spiritual and that's one of the big principles within the model that we use is like understanding like spirituality understanding like self-knowledge being flexible and thought and looking at like you you mentioned diunitologic earlier but like just how can you gain a higher level of consciousness and how can you protect yourself by like having these values and that's been true to like although this is something that like the other thing that Dr. Myers talks about is like you can't do this unless you live it and so it also is something that I become so passionate about and I think that you because it's like it's something that you actually know because you've lived right. and so you're not just speaking about it because it sounds like some good concept mm-hmm. like it becomes so like true to who you are mm-hmm. because it com- it's like essential to your well-being mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it sustains you it protects you mm-hmm. in like this chaotic world and it allows you to like not internalize these things that people would say about you that are negative or bad or toxic like what the world will have you believe about yourself like mental health and and bsa and optimal theory like allows you to like focus on and understand the truth 
So yeah. like that's just a big deal. That'll change your whole life. Yeah. To know your worth. Yeah. To know your it does. purpose. To live in your purpose. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. So yeah. So it's not just life changing for the people that it serves from a client's perspective, but the people that it employs and educates. Yeah. And, you know, because it does the same thing. It serves. So that's very. That's very much spiritual in itself because it serves everybody who it's yeah it heals the healers itself so that yeah, the healers can go yeah, out and continue yeah, to do that work yeah yeah that's that, that's that's great um can you talk to me a little bit about you spoke on it earlier but what does the research say um about mental health in black people you know what does what does it kind of say as it relates to black people getting serviced in mental health and getting mental health services what does it say. Yeah, I spoke to it earlier. There's like big points that come out of it. Um, and some of the like bigger points are that like typically when black people do engage, like they pre uh, they terminate treatment prematurely, which means that like they may go, but they may not return or stay or they may end services for a variety of different reasons. Uh, they often are like over pathologized. So like they're not understood. Um, and what does over pathologize mean? So yeah, they're not understood. So like their culture is not taken into account and the things that they're experiencing and how they may describe their lived experiences, symptoms, behaviors, what they believe or think may be looked at as something that is bad, wrong, unhealthy. Um, and so it's taken out of context and pathologizes what that means. It's like it's sick, something wrong with it, um, which then that leads to like misdiagnosis because then you have people that have an inappropriate diagnosis. And when you have inappropriate diagnosis, when you have people that are looked at as sick, as wrong, as not worthy. And so, um, and this is not even always like intentional by people, but then you have like poor treatment mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because that then all is supposed to like inform then how you treat somebody and like what you are recommending uh, what interventions you're doing so then all of that is not going to be like aligned if all of those other things are like problematic and if you're using like approaches that aren't grounded in people's like values mm -hmm. um, because everything is value based mm -hmm. and so that's what we know so even when you look at traditional therapeutic models like there are values attached to those models and so if I'm pushing and enforcing these values of this therapeutic approach on you even if it doesn't feel like it's a push like that but if that's what I'm talking to you about or when you're giving when you're talking to me and I'm giving you feedback about this set of values that's not true to who you are that's not going to fit for you and that mm -hmm. could be more dangerous to you and more harmful than it could be helpful mm -hmm. and that's a lot of times the values of like this culture that we live in like this westernized culture like those values that those traditional approaches have are many times western values mm -hmm. so like it's not good for us it's not even good for them right Why is talk therapy so important? Um, notice I said talk therapy, um, but can you speak to me about other forms of therapy or healing that may be beneficial? But why is talk therapy spe specifically so important? Why do I think it's important? Yes. Um, I think that it is important for people to tell their stories mm -hmm. um, and to process that loud, out loud, I think that they, like that has to like leave your being. I think that, and I mean, research says this, but like I guess I'm really big on like trauma and experiences and just life being in our bodies. Our body is like our home or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I just think that there's something to be said about the importance of like speaking and talking about your lived experiences out loud that you can hear them and that 
somebody else can hear them and you can process through that together mm-hmm. um or have like a guide or somebody to hold space with you while you do that yeah i think that that's just really important because yeah. you're speaking from a lot of different things and sometimes i think in our heads things and in our hearts things are jumbled and so once you hear them come out you can better be able to sort through things that may be stuck jumbled confused um all of that inside of you and then also like there's a level of like accountability because mm. some people believe like you know like if you yeah and like if you say certain things and like those things will manifest even if you some people think if you think it then those things will manifest but like saying it like then it's like well i didn't spoke it and now you know it's time to make it happen or time to do something with it yeah um can you speak on anxiety um, specifically anxiety because that word is like a buzzword it seems like a buzzword today but it really has some serious concerns to it um i deal with anxiety a, l- a little bit um and i didn't even know that i even dealt with anxiety um until i figured out that it was actually anxiety um i learned that my father deals with anxiety pretty bad and i didn't even know that also but now that i have a very un- better understanding of what it is i realize how um prevalent it is i believe it is in people um not necessarily from a illness perspective but how many people may struggle with it as a symptom so can you speak on that a little bit yeah just a little bit i guess the first thing that comes to my mind only because i am rereading like a return to love or we're rereading it together so i guess the first thing that comes to my mind that's good well i guess that's well that's just the first thing that's here because it's like right here Mm -hmm. speak on it speak on it queen (laughs) whatever (laughs) and so it's just this idea um, and Marianne Williamson or whatever writes from a course and she talks about and references the course in miracles but it's this idea that's not her idea um, and it's it's an old idea of that there are only two things which are fear and love mm-hmm. um, and so you're either like moving in one of those directions I guess mm-hmm. and so that anytime that you move in love or make a decision or think in love then a miracle occurs and that it's not these like major things but it sometimes it's just a shift in perspective mm-hmm. and i think that when you think about that because how easy it is for us to get caught or stuck in anxiety or fear i guess produces like anxiety or worry or nervousness or whatever like all of these different words that we use and variations of intensity of like anxiety it makes me think of those all being a part of this family of like of fear mm-hmm. um, and fear being attached to all of these like more deep rooted things, things that we may experience, whether it's like inadequacy or uh, just whatever our thing is that we struggle through. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's what makes me think of it. But yeah, there's different levels and intensities of it. I do think that a lot of people are impacted by it and struggle with it on some sense. Like you said, not even that it's um, like that it's clinically significant, but from the fact that like we all experience like, different levels of anxiety connect to different things and at different points in our life it might even be higher because it's just it's also like something to be said about stress and there's good stress and bad stress and many times our anxieties are connected to the stressors in our lives um so so anxiety is fear-based a lot of times more times than not yeah i would think so yeah yeah because i mean it's how you could go into this whole thing and talk about like our brains Mm -hmm. um and how our brains function and operate and how we're wired, um, which is a lot of what's going on too and when we talk about anxiety. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's a big part of it. Okay. Um, talk to me about these centering groups um, for pregnant women and infant vitality and mortality that you lead. Um, 
um, the overall. <laughs> Why are you looking at me like that? You don't want to talk about that. No, go ahead. No, I want I want you to speak. I want you to speak on it. Um, but specifically in the area of Akron and like infant vitality and what that specifically infant vitality in this area of Akron. Um, but talk to me a little bit about those groups. Yeah. So, um, it's interesting. So, okay. So part of what we do at MBHG and a part of like an initiative within this city and within this state, um, is around the infant mortality rates and how high they are. Um, and so the thought is that black babies die at twice, two times the rate of like white babies. That's like the most common thing that you hear. But when you put that into numbers, it becomes very alarming of like, when you think about, excuse me, how, not only how many black babies die before they turn one, because that's the idea is that infant mortality is a black baby dying before the age of one, takes mm-hmm. a breath and dies before the age of one. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also like maternal morbidity is high. Like the amount of black women that die related to like childbirth is very high. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know that that's not what you asked me to talk about, but that's what the programming is connected to. Mm-hmm. And so infant vitality is the word that we use um, because we want to provide services that promote life and um, and cultivate well-being and health. And so MBHG partners with other agencies or entities here um, in Summit County. And one of the things that we do and that we're a part of um, are group services for women and families, I would say, too, because like partners are invited, family members are invited. And we are continuing to try to make this more like family centric and not just about just like the women that are engaged in the groups. But the idea is that you come when you're pregnant to a group every week or every other week um and in this group um are a variety of different like providers that all are there to help like meet needs and just share in like in community um so there's your like OBGYN um who in the group that I'm a part of is an African-American woman and she's the only black OBGYN woman doctor here um in Summit County and she's amazing and then there's a group that we work with Project Ujima Um, and they facilitate the circles Um, and then we're a part of the circles as well because we call them circles we sit in circles Mm -hmm. Um, we process and do all of the work within a circle Mm -hmm. and so MBHG is involved um, and SUMA healthcare systems is involved with their community health workers it's housed there and then also like we're there as mental health providers and community health workers so it's all of these different providers that are part of the circle with the women it's really like a sisterhood circle is what we call it which of course like fathers come too mm-hmm. and so women mm-hmm. come when they're pregnant and they come up until their babies are one and so after their babies like are born they like we have offered child care offer food and it's so you called it centering because like we call it that the centering is like this trademarked model um but it's very interesting because it was designed in the research a lot of it is uh, with white women and what we do is like we Centering is considered an evidence-based model, which also is interesting when we talk about evidence-based approaches, but the research is not really on like black women and how it helps for black women, but the outcomes that we have for the group that I'm a part of with the partners, the outcomes are very favorable. Um, And it's because I think of all of the different things that are addressed in just the sisterhood that's been created, I guess. Mm. And what our role specifically is like to be the mental health providers in the room. And then also what we do is help to make sure that the content 
in the curriculum is culturally specific. So everything is va- is grounded in African-centered values and everything ties back to a value. Mm. And like I said a little bit earlier, it's like your values are what you live from and that's what sustains you and protects you and et cetera. And yeah. so we really focus on that and like identity development because this world will strip you of your identity and who you think you are. Absolutely. Um, and so we focus <clears throat> on like on that. A lot, it's a lot. Yeah. So it's, so it's, Giving mothers the proper education to save their lives in order to save their child's life, almost. I guess if I'm saying that correctly. Oh, I wouldn't say that, but it it's providing like because the other thing is like there's the health component, right? So it's like encourages breastfeeding and like Mm -hmm. talks about nutrition. It talks Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. stages of labor. So like it exposes you to these things. So I guess it's more like exposure and a guideline and framework of like information okay. that's going on in like okay. the field. Mm-hmm. But then it also is like all of these other topics that are like tied up in it. We talk about discipline, et cetera. And then it's this space where you can like talk to women and families that are in the same space in life mm-hmm. as you are mm-hmm. and learn these things together. But the idea about circles is that um, like the circle has everything that it needs and that the wisdom is within the circle. And so there's a lot of learning and exchanging of information amongst the women, mm-hmm. not necessarily. And that's the thing is like, everybody is equal. It's not like we're there as these like experts. Mm-hmm. I'm there to connect people to mental health services as they need, reduce the stigma and get people like, like I said, like connected to help them um, process through some things. But mm-hmm. like the circle offers just so much in and of itself. But yeah, a lot of what well, infant mortality was interesting with black women and children is that, across like it's not just a thing connected to poverty because even the research says that like even like across education and like my baby is more likely to die than a white woman with a high school diploma Mm. like so it's not even that a lot of it is about systems Mm -hmm. and racism and a lot of it is about stress and how women carry stress and experience stress That we know too, <clears throat> and they've done this research on like Holocaust survivors and stuff. It's like literally, it's like in you. Yeah. You can carry it from generation to generation. So we're talking about people don't want to call it. I mean, it's PTSS, post traumatic slave syndrome, but like people don't want to say it's post, like it's right. ongoing. It's ongoing. Yeah. yeah. What can what can be done to combat this? What should women be doing? I guess is my real question. Or what can men be doing? Also, what can we do as a whole to kind of combat that? Well, infant serious, mortality. Yeah, that's a serious thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that what's really important is so how we originally got introduced to it, and not originally, but in some ways how we were playing a role was like in what people were thinking of us as because we always knew that it was beyond this, but like postpartum. Mm -hmm. And like we know that like women, all women experience some level of like, you know, in symptoms and, you know, challenges that come with the fourth trimester. So, um but mental health shouldn't start there mm-hmm. it should have like it probably should have started a long time ago mm-hmm. and so i think that what people can do is like get involved in appropriate like care and talk through and work through some of their their stuff mm-hmm. in their stories and like experience liberation and like remind themselves of who they are and their values and connect back because that's the other thing is like people have everything they need within them it's just getting back to it yeah. so i think i think therapy helps to do that so like i think therapy helps um, I think that like understanding and like being a part of like community. So I do think that like the group settings are helpful and knowing about the information I think is helpful. Um, 
and like really just living and practicing the things that are like shared within those settings and like really advocating for yourself and having a community of people around you that you can like advocate. So like there's other groups and stuff like that, that like who you have in the room with you and who you have in your life during this time, like your relationships are really important when we're talking about um, infant vitality or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Educate and empower yourself. Yeah. And still values. Yeah, and live them. Right, live them. Yeah. So hard. You can't do that. I can't be like, here's this value of self-determination right. and expect you to live it just because right. I've said, I've taught you this value. Right. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about about yoga. Um, why is it important? The origins of yoga. Is yoga for black people, for black men? Talk to me about yoga. Um. So, yeah, I mean, when I was just <clears> talking <throat> about like stuff being in your body I think that that's one of the reasons why like I'm drawn to yoga so yoga literally means like to yoke or to link um it means like the union and so it's this idea of like mind and body um we understand it to be like in the east and like come from like the east but what we see in like in the hieroglyphics and in Egypt is that there are like these poses and like yoga existed then and I mean, it depends on what you believe and how far you want to trace it. Of course, everything is going to go back to the motherland. So like, even though a lot of further <clears throat> development was done in the East, like I would say it initiated um, in Africa in many ways in the philosophy of what it means and what is grounded in and starts then, although it further developed in the East more. Um, but yeah, I think that it's our practice. Um, I think it's the practice of, of brown people. And I think that we have to return to it in some ways. I don't. Everybody doesn't think that it's for them, but there's the asanas is what people think of as like yoga, which are the postures and the poses, and that's not really what it is. It's really this philosophy, and there's like um, it's a lot more spiritual than it is like this movement. And mm-hmm. so what we think of about it in the West is like this moving meditation of like doing these different things and doing tree pose. And a lot of times we think of like these thin white women doing all of this like funky stuff with their bodies but it's really like a way of being before it was anything else and if there's i think it really can work for everybody because there are so many different variations of it that people can engage in now with how it's developed but it's really about like your breath too so it's about this mind body connection but like also like recognizing and understanding like the power of like your breath and meditation yeah I, i mean listen when you first try to put me on the yoga, I wanted no parts, zero parts, none I'm at aware. all, zilch. I, I wanted, I wanted no parts. But I was more so concerned in what you're referring to on the physical aspect of it. Um, it was hard. Mm-hmm. It was weird. It was difficult. Um, so I just didn't want any parts of it. But as I learned um, how to breathe and knew that breathing was very essential in it, then I became much more liberated mentally uh, from doing it. And I still, I think to this day, even when I practice now, I still think I get way more out of it mentally than I do physically, but I understand that they're very much connected. Um, so they go hand in hand, but um, it was hard. But over time, as I just began to kind of practice and understand um, it's breathing and stretching and really just being one, um, it's really kind of, for me, the way I think of it sometimes, it's like, it's really like a, um, uh, individual martial arts almost because mm-hmm. you kind of like at a physical balance battle with yourself a lot of times you know mm-hmm. with your own body weight and things like that so i could really appreciate that um what t- t- talk about it um from a standpoint of um 
why do you think it's important for children to practice yoga um, and how that can even help with their mental health symptoms, um, but just overall in their wealth and health and wellness as a whole for children specifically? Um, yeah, so just it's like this thing of like the earlier the better, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, like if we were to teach these components and help children to understand like their oneness and connect to oneness and um understand their breath and i think it's very mental like you can't do physical things without like yeah Mm -hmm. first Mm -hmm. enduring and that's how you make it through and Mm -hmm. etc um and so i think that it's just such a skill that children could learn and i think that it would help so much in our schools and communities and etc because um it's an active way of engagement then also teaching children stillness in this age where like we're moving just more and more to like technology and things being so fast paced. It just like challenges the other side of that with stillness. And I think that you have to have both because we already know like where we're going and where we are and you have to have, you have to have like the other side to find someone in the middle. I just, I think it'll help regulate children. Um, and it helps them with like what we want to call now is like mindfulness. Mm -hmm. But like when I say regulate, like their emotions help them to tolerate distress, yeah. um, help them to like just be centered and grounded because everything else, like our attention span is like horrible. Like we find comfort in being able to like connect to all of this like technology and stuff, but it'll mm-hmm. just those practices Avoiding. of stillness. Yeah, mm-hmm. those practices of stillness help you to find your way closer to the middle mm-hmm. and to what's true mm-hmm. so that you can like hear yourself like you have to have stillness to hear what's going on within you right right and it's easy so, to avoid that yeah it's almost like we're designed to avoid avoid that so you know really be able to um not really connect back to our true self almost yeah um, yeah i was listening to that i think it was like a london real one I don't, that guy i think he talked about it how like the mind is like he was saying that the mind is like designed to like not like stillness right. because of how busy it is right. and right. like it's like when i explain to people like when they're meditating and they're like it's like telling your heart to stop beating to tell it your mind to stop way. thinking yeah yeah. Don't work that way. Yeah. yeah so yeah um well first and foremost thank you um for for doing this um we we towards the end the way that i I'll wrap up every episode the same i always ask the guests um some few questions so i want to do that with you right now um, okay if that's okay with you um we made it we could talk forever because we talk all day yeah. that's why this is so long well you know what i want to go back real real quick um what? what's the biggest misconception about yoga you think the biggest misconception yeah um yeah is that you have to like look a certain way and do things a certain way and it's about like these like i think that people really think it's about like movement and yeah. what you can look and what do look and, like. and your flexibility and like it's it's really i think ego right. like People think of it and it's a lot of ego connected mm-hmm, to it. Mm-hmm. Almost like on some working out type stuff where you got to be in the gym showing off type stuff. and it's Yeah, and that yeah. you're doing it and you do better at it by what you can advance to do. Competition. Like, yeah. yeah, even competing with, with yourself or what you think about yourself and what you should be able to do. Yeah, which is suboptimal. <laughs> That's what we would argue. Right, right, right. Um, tell me about the top three values that you try to abide by. My you, top three values? Yeah, yes. Um. So spirituality, mm-hmm. um, self knowledge, mm-hmm. and it's hard to get to three because then it's like, what do you do with all the other ones? Mm-hmm. 
And it's like, so now my mind is like, well, I could call that that. Because, mm-hmm. like, when I think about, like, um, the idea of, like, connection and relationships, that makes me just think of spiritualities. Because, like, I really want to say, like, relationships and, mm-hmm. like, understanding, like, the importance of, like, your ancestors and, like, those who come after you and, like, um, legacy. So, like, I really want to say that. Like, I want to say relationships. Okay. But I really think I could put that into spirituality. So okay. I'll just leave it there because I could just go on for days. Okay. So, spirituality, mm-hmm. relationships. Yes, I said self-knowledge. Self-knowledge? Yeah, okay. I mean, but there's, like, I really do value, like, the see consciousness I could put in spirituality. I think that it's important to, like, I don't know, being, like, present and having a good time. There's something about that, too, that I think is really important mm-hmm. that I think I value. Okay. And that you have to value more and more. My intention card today was dance, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. But that's another thing, which I think is, like, about being present and having a good time. What was your intention card yesterday? What was it? Uh, rebel. Yeah, rebel. Yeah. <laughs> Be a rebeller. <laughs> Rebellious um, like being a disruptor. Um, Non-negotiable things that are done for you every day. Ugh. Or one thing. Tell me one non-negotiable thing that's that you do every day, no matter what, that you have to do every day. Maybe that you don't do, but you have to do, or you feel off. I have to, like, I have to ground myself. Like, I have to, like, ground and center myself and have, like, some time to do that, which often includes, in all, I guess always includes, like, prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's important. Okay. Um, the best day and the worst day of your life? Um... I don't know what the best day of my life is. I can think of some really nice ones. Like the day we got engaged, I thought was really nice Mm -hmm. because you were like, you made it very special. And I had this time with like people. It was very nice. Talk that talk. (laughs) That was nice. Um, I mean, the wedding day was really nice. Mm -hmm. That seems, those seem like so cliche. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I give you those. Yeah, I don't I know. I mean, too, so I those. yeah, but my days are good when I'm just with like people that I love and we're just doing normal, regular stuff. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Worst yeah, days. Worst day. I don't know. I don't think that they're. I can't think of whole days, but like I could think of really moments. bad moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I could think of like some bad moments as it relates to like, um, like with my family and stuff and with our family, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. that were really bad moments that I was like, oh, it's going to be hard to come. We was already in a bad place. It's going to be hard to come back from that. So yeah. I could think of like bad moments, moments, but the whole day wasn't bad. Yeah. yeah. Even though you feel stuff is coming, like you feel it coming on, but I still can't categorize the whole mm-hmm. day as that. So stuff like that, I guess. Okay. Tell me something about you that people would be surprised to know. Oh, I didn't know this was a question you asked. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think people would be surprised to know? That you can talk a lot. Yeah, I do. But and this is <laughs> I probably think gonna be surprised to know this that. This is so long because I'm talking to you. But yeah, I but do. I can, can talk, talk a lot. I talk a lot. What's funny, your mom put you on the spot about that too. She was like, Sierra can go. Oh, I talk you and my mom's ear off. But she was saying that as a child that you had 
the personality of a person who could talk a lot. To but, y'all. but more so in spaces where you feel comfortable, yeah, for you sure. know, not maybe not out in the open. But I think people will be surprised to know that you can talk. I can talk your ear off. This is these is these are these. I just talked to whoever about to listen to this ear off. They probably like, dang, is she done yet? No, I didn't no. talk. We, we could go a whole other. I didn't talk to Cole and Terrell's ear off over we here. To, we just had to speed it up. We could really go a whole other hour. Um, what scares you? Um, tank. Um. I guess I fear, like, I have this thing with, like, uh, wanting to do, like, my part. Like, living and how and living within what I'm supposed to. Like, living within my purpose. Mm -hmm. So, I fear, like, not doing that. But then it's like, well, then how do you not really doing that? Because then it's like, that's a part of the journey and the path or whatever. So like not, it's, but it's almost on something like not living up to your full potential or like maximizing or understanding like the power that you have, like selling yourself short too many times. Like, I guess it's stuff like that mm-hmm. that I think about. Okay. Do you have a favorite quote or scripture? I mean, no, it's ones that stick out, but no, not that I can think not of. Not a favorite one? No, my, my thing for the year is to be intentional with my attention. Okay. But that's not my favorite quote, but yeah. I mean, it's what it I'm thinking about this year. Okay. That's what I'm doing this year. Okay. Because I can't be all over the place. We can roll, we can roll with that. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we, can, we can roll with that. So what I would say to my 20-year-old self. Yes, what would you say to your 20-year-old self? Uh, to keep shining. <laughs> <laughs> so I would tell myself to just uh, just keep learning about yourself. Just keep being open. And like it just gets better and better. Okay. And what is living your purpose to you? Um, I guess it's those things. It's like. So it's learning and growing like within yourself. Um, and I, I guess purpose on some level, I think what I believe is like, it's all about like your connection to like your higher power and like those around you and something before and after you. So it's about like uh, understanding your piece to the puzzle, I guess. And like being open to how creative that is and beautiful that is and and embracing who you are, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's lovely. Well, thank you, thank you. See, I have to, I have to give you a um a special shout out and thank you for doing this. Um, I know this is different for you, you know, to be on this side. Um, but I do appreciate you. I love you so much. Um, I thank you for everything that you've been able to um teach me about myself, but also being able to teach me about life in general. Um, and just kind of experience and to experience life with you. Um. I thank you for that. You know, I tell you all the time that when we got together and seeing us where we are today, I always knew it was going to be special, but it, I never imagined it to be this good. And, you know, it turned out to be better than I thought. So I God appreciate you for that. God didn't have to be that good, huh? God didn't have to be that good. He just keep on blessing me. I don't know why, but God keep blessing me. Um, but, but I just want to say thank you um, for that. Thanks and for having th- th- me. Thank you for you know for being a part of this cold world, the real. Thank y'all. Yeah, y'all you know, amazing. Team, y'all, y'all amazing. Had my them team. here forever. Oh my god. I can't do this alone, man. Without without my team, man. So I appreciate. Do I, your I other guests them. talk while you talking? Sometimes I mean, oh, okay. you, you got special privileges. Oh, okay. you, know, you know what I'm saying. So it's, it's all good. Um, we end the show the same way every every episode. Mm-hmm. Um, as you already know, um, Arian Foster was one of the inspirations in kind of starting this podcast. Yeah. And the way that he does it is he shoots to the camera to lobby for Jim Carrey to get on his show. So I asked all the guests to look at that camera right there and lobby for Arian Foster to why he should be on the Living Purpose podcast. We're gonna get him on here one day. We're gonna speak it in fruition. 
Erin Foster, if you are a real one, then you would already know what time it is. Because, like, no, really, this is a big deal. Because, like, he really listens to this your podcast and really has like shaped this in some ways from what you've developed so this is building upon that and really honors what you do so that's a big deal and so you should give that back i guess in that way and it would just be great to like see y'all connect and it would just be genuine because he's a real genuine person you want to be around real people if you a real one and i know we know that you are so you don't even got no choice it's really not even like an option it's just like when is it gonna happen not if it's gonna happen so I mean, that's all I got. Facts. What else can we say to end, to, to end it off that, man? Thank you all so much for, for joining. My love, thank you so much again. Cold World The Real. Good looking out to y'all. Live Your Purpose Podcast, Episode 3. We out. Get a Popeye's chicken sandwich.